the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, where we discuss all things crypto-related. Your host, Kieran Ryan. How safe are your cryptos really? It's astonishing to recall some of the biggest hacks in the crypto space over the years. Mt. Gox emptied of nearly 800,000 Bitcoin in 2014, at the time worth about $460 million. Just this year, Wormhole lost an estimated $325 million due to hacks, and the Poly Network was relieved of cryptos worth $611 million. The rewards for hackers multiply as crypto prices increase, and stealing cryptos is easier than ransomware, which is when hackers block access to a company computer system until a sum of money is paid. There's no doubt that concerns and misconceptions about the security of digital assets have kept many potential investors away from cryptos. These misconceptions arise because there are several links in the crypto chain, and attacks usually occur on the weakest link. The Bitcoin blockchain, however, has never been hacked. So what are these weak links and how do you know if your cryptos are safe? Well, to unpack this, we're joined by Gaurav Nair, who is co-founder of alternative investment group Jaltech. Welcome, Gaurav. A lot of people unfamiliar with cryptos assume that because they've been so many spectacular hacks that it's unsafe, but that's not entirely true, is it? Maybe just explain where these weak links are in the crypto security chain. Thank you for having me, Kieran. Sure. Anyone can spin up a blockchain. However, blockchains are actually quite safe. And um, no major chain has been successfully attacked directly. And this is because as the usage of a chain increases, it becomes harder and harder. The cost goes up to attack the chain. These are called 51% attacks, where someone manages to control more than half of the miners that are mining these blocks. And so... um, the largest chains have never been successfully attacked via a 51% attack. Some of the attacks you talked about are actually targeting other weak links. So what we've often seen is these bridges or smart contracts, they are pieces of code that run on the blockchain and they have often been attacked. However, a person's wallet, a wallet is just a private key, a string of information which allows you to spend your crypto It's also very difficult to attack a person's wallet directly. It requires far too much computing power to do that. And so what attackers do is they attack the weakest link, which is often human beings. This is done in the way we see other types of attacks online. People engage in phishing attacks where they pretend to be uh, your wallet software, for example, and ask you for your password to access your private key. Other scams where people target Uh, crypto users with malicious software. They send them an email, they open an attachment, for example, and now their software is spying on them, waiting for them to use their wallet um, or guessing passwords. A lot of people, um, they reuse the same password in multiple places. And so where they have a wallet that's online, people then try and use these passwords that they may have gotten from elsewhere. However, the blockchain itself is an extremely safe uh, method of transacting. Okay, the reason I ask this is because it has been speculated that one of the reasons for this drop, this don't call it a drop, it's a crash in crypto prices. I mean, some of the altcoins are down 90% from their peak. Uh, Bitcoin itself is down about 70%. When it's been speculated that one of the reasons for this is security concerns generally around crypto. Would you agree with that? 
Actually, I would disagree. It's a common misconception. Um, crypto is part of the larger environment. And we know that the macroeconomic environment is quite tough. There is a war between Russia and Ukraine causing food prices and energy prices to increase. We've had the pandemic and there was a lot of printing of money and stimulus, uh, which has resulted in inflation. And now the, uh, the US Federal Reserve is raising interest rates. Um, and as that happens, investors, they rebalance their portfolio. They move out of the risky assets and they move into the less risky assets. And crypto is seen as one of the riskiest assets, but crypto is not alone. The tech stocks have also been hammered hugely. Compounding this though, crypto has had a few of its own events. These haven't been security events though. The two major events is that a large crypto project called Terra Luna, it failed, but it didn't fail from a security point of view. It just ended up not doing what, what was intended, which was maintaining its value. At the same time as all of that was happening, um, you had some large crypto banks, to call them that. They were getting money from depositors who were depositing their crypto and promising to pay them high interest rates on it. And the way they were generating that return is they were on lending that crypto to hedge funds, as well as investing it on the blockchain to try and generate higher returns in the interest rates they promised. And as the crypto prices have dropped, uh, there's been defaults on these loans and these uh, various crypto banks have paused withdrawals. And so this has in fact been what's, what's led to the major downturn in crypto. It hasn't actually been security issues. Okay, talk about institutional grade security for a minute. It's a word that's being thrown around a lot these days. What does it actually mean? How do you define it at Geltic? Sure, so um, because crypto is such a new asset class, there's no actual set definition of what institutional grade security actually means. There's no body that's defined it. However, it's analogous to how institutions protect their other assets, their non-crypto assets. It's setting up systems, processes, security, technology, etc., to create an equivalent level of security to protect crypto assets. And the reason that the word institutional is there is that the main users of these institutional grade security tend to be large hedge funds, et cetera. They need to protect their crypto. And these are the institutions, institutional grade security. Now, there are many protocols, procedures, best practices that have been defined in this space. And what's coming to develop is a general set of accepted procedures and protocols that define institutional grade security. Okay, so let's just drill down a little bit into that. You've got uh, concepts like hot wallets, a hot wallet being a, that's a digital wallet, which is connected to the internet. Now, that's the point of greatest vulnerability for any digital asset. And then you have cold wallets, which are, I guess, something like a flash drive, um, and they're all kind of versions of that, which are not connected to the internet. So th that seems to be part of the basis for that. And then you have public and private keys and various other things. Can you just talk about some of those uh, technologies that are used in the definition of institutional grade security. Sure. So the, the thing that we're trying to protect always is, is this concept called the private key. And whoever has a private key, they can spend the crypto that's been associated with that, with that private key. And that is the thing that we're trying to keep secret in essence and protect. Now you have hot wallets, as you, as you described, these are where the private key is saved on some kind of computer or device that's connected to the internet. The convenient factor about this is that it allows you to interact with the blockchain, which is on the internet, quite easily. However, it opens you up to the risk of being hacked. 
Uh, if someone can hack your computer for another reason, they can then find the private key and now they can spend that crypto instead. Cold wallets is any device that's not connected to the internet. So this could be a flash drive. You could transfer the private key onto a flash drive and then lock that away. But it even includes other methods such as writing down the private key on a piece of paper. That's offline and hence it's not open to being hacked. Of course, cold wallets require physical security. They require physical vaults. The reason being that someone can physically steal the device or the, uh, or the piece of paper, et cetera, the record. Cold wallets also open to the risk of destruction. In as much as there's a fire or an accident, it could be destroyed, in which case the crypto associated with that private key can't be spent. The liability of cold wallets as well is that when you want to spend the crypto or move the crypto around, you need to then transfer it to a device that's connected to the internet in order then to spend that, um, that cryptocurrency. Overall, there are many methods that have been designed to provide security for these private keys. And some of these key principles are quite standard even in the world of other assets. So I'll kind of run through these and talk about them. The one is the division of responsibilities. This is separating out the person that loads a transaction to the person that authorizes it. You can have multiple authorizers, multiple checkers in the process. The second one is actually having key components of the private key being offline and then secured by physical security. So we're talking about brick and mortar bank vaults that provide this security. Once this is done, you can actually separate out all the various components geographically. This is separating out the human beings geographically, separating out any portions that are offline geographically. This prevents the risk that there's any accident or destruction, and also prevents the risk of a physical attack of someone appearing with a gun and saying, you know, spend the private keys because they would need to actually attack multiple physical geographically separate areas. Then what we also do in protecting these keys is we have limits. There's technology, we use the best technology, and this technology involves, if there's a certain amount of crypto spent, that it actually is time delayed. So this would then require attackers to attack all these various locations and to do it within a, a short period of time. If, however, the various components don't come together in that short window of time, then the authority is removed and the amount can't be spent. Incorporating all these principles together, this is recognized as the gold standard of processes and the institutional grade security that we're talk talking about. Um, and one of the last key components is that the actual details of all of this is kept highly secret. This is because the more secret it is, that then prevents anyone from being able to find out uh, how to attack this process. Then that does make sense. I mean, if you, you want to stay one step ahead of the bad guys, you want to keep uh, your information, your security information, certainly you want to keep that as secret as possible. So we're talking here sort of very general concepts. You know, we, we think about the private key and, and public key. I, just to make a comparison there, your public key would be your bank account by way of analogy. Yeah, that's a really good analogy. I do agree with it. The major difference being, though, is that the private key is very fragile because if you lose your password for your bank account or your PIN, you go to the bank branch, you show them your ID, you show them your fingerprint, et cetera, whatever security measures they have in place, and they allow you to reset it. However, when it comes to the private key, if you lose the private key, there is no central authority that can give you access again, or that can give you a new one. And so that money then is actually forever lost. And it's estimated that about 20% of all cryptos have actually been lost in this way. 
that people have lost access to the private key, not stolen, just lost access to the private key and hence cannot spend this crypto. Right. So, I mean, if you look at Bitcoin, there's only going to be 21 million coins in issue at any one time. And per some of the research that I've read, 4 million coins, it was between 3 and 4 million coins of that are, are lost forever. You know, so they're, they're frozen out there somewhere and will probably never be recovered. That is a huge amount. It's about 20%, right? That's right. That's right. I mean, the price of Bitcoin has, of course, dropped a lot. But at, when Bitcoin was a trillion dollars, that was $200 billion of value. Um, so it's a, it's a staggering amount of value. And if and when Bitcoin reaches those heights and goes further, it's, it really is a large amount of value. So the question arises, uh, and we, we've got to get into discussion about exchanges and the centralized and decentralized exchanges. But in your opinion, should people be removing their cryptos from exchanges and putting them in cold storage wallets, uh, and, and there are these wallets available like Ledger Nano X or Trezor Model T, and there's a whole bunch of them. What's your advice? Should people be removing their cryptos from exchanges? Well, I think there's going to be different solutions that apply to different people. The reason that people are thinking about this a lot now is exactly because of the failure of these institutions that took deposits from people and then lent out their crypto. And so, a lot of these exchanges, because crypto is so new and unregulated in many ways in many jurisdictions, a lot of people don't have faith in these institutions where their crypto is currently sitting, in how exactly their crypto is being managed and being kept safe. So for people that have the skills, they can take it off these exchanges into their own custody, which is often called self-custody. And as we talked about, there are some risks associated with this. There's the risk of destruction or loss of the private key, whether it's on a piece of paper or whether it is uh, on a flash drive. Um, there's also the risk of theft via hacking or just via what's called a $5 wrench attack. You know, if someone threatens to hit you on the head with, with the $5 wrench, so a very cheap attack, uh, you might be compelled to give away the, the password to your flash drive and hence your private keys. But the third aspect, which people often don't think about, is estate planning. There are probably numerous cases where people have passed away and not only do their heirs not know how to access the cryptocurrency that they're now due to inherit, it's even worse that often their heirs don't even know about it. It's sitting on a hard drive in a desk drawer and or a piece of paper. How would they know even that this is some of the assets of the person who's passed away? So there is another option to leaving it on exchanges or taking to self-custody, and that is opting for a professional firm to provide the custody. Uh, what the professional firm does is there's a promise that they are not lending it out, et cetera, and they then provide the custody services. It's, uh, you, it's, it's The private keys are kept according to those principles that we outlined earlier, um, and the, the heirs of the person are noted by the professional firm. And so if and when the person passes away, uh, the executor comes to the professional firm, and then the uh, various cryptocurrencies are handed over to the, the heirs, along with training, in fact, on how to access their, those currencies and keep them safe. Yeah, I mean, you talk about the $5 wrench attack we had on the podcast uh, quite some months ago, Rochella Lopez, who was at the time with a company called Blue Stratum uh, out of Brazil, although they also had a presence in South Africa. And he told us about his wife being kidnapped in, uh, and she ended up in Sao Paulo. Uh, and it brought to mind a, a number of things about, you know, this, this crypto wealth, a lot of people who made a lot of money early on, 
would be well advised to keep it quiet <laughs> to avoid these sort of $5 wrench attacks that you're talking about, because that is the easiest way. Instead of trying to hack it, you know, you, you just uh, put a gun to somebody's head and you say, what's your private key, right? And I think a lot of people are waking up to that fact that they need to be a little bit more discreet in the way that they let it be known that they're involved in the crypto market and how much they're worth. you agree with that? I do agree with that. And also as a custody firm, uh, it's something that we emphasize a lot as well, which is that uh, attacking the custody firm itself would be utterly useless. The way the processes and procedures are set up is specifically to prevent that so that no single person can spend the coins and that the actual spenders of the coins are split geographically across numerous jurisdictions. Right. Jeltic does offer a crypto basket. I think you've got nine cryptos in there and you've, you've sort of filtered these out based on a, a range of criteria, but it would include things like Bitcoin and Ethereum and Solana from, from memory. The security that we've been talking about, is that very much part of what you're offering here? So that the clients would go to you um, because you're offering this, this very, very high grade institutional security. Yeah, you're 100% right. So amongst our numerous criteria of what uh, cryptos can be in the basket, one of our key criteria is that the cryptos need to be able to be custodied by our solutions. So in this way, we don't leave any cryptos sitting on any exchanges. They are, once we buy them for our investors, we immediately take them offline and they're put into our institutional grade solutions. Now, just talk about the state of the crypto market for a minute. What, what is your reading of the market as we enter the second half of 2022? Are we likely to see further moves down before a correction occurs? I mean, all the metrics are pointing towards a bear market and a fairly sustained bear market, but yet there are some buyers beginning to nibble. So what do you make of this? Well, as I mentioned earlier, um, crypto is more and more considered part of the financial system. More and more institutions are coming in. And while this is a positive thing for the adoption of crypto, it also means that it becomes more and more correlated with other assets. And it's, for these institutions, crypto is considered the riskiest asset. And so for better or worse, crypto's fortunes are not tied with the macro environment. And we talked about some of these things, the risks of inflation and recession, et cetera. And so the fortune of crypto depends on this. However, that being said, crypto is going through an adoption cycle. And so as there are more and more players increasingly adopting crypto, adding it to their portfolio, et cetera, adding it as something that has an asymmetric profile that can probably return much more than it can lose. As this happens, that is something that's bullish for crypto, that's, that's positive, and it will, will break the trend in as much as we have an overall bear market happening. However, for a lot of investors, you know, how do they approach this? It's, it's very difficult to time the market, even for professionals. Some people say impossible. And so often what's a good idea is to dollar cost average, is to set aside an amount that one can save regularly, let's say once a month or twice a month, and to invest that amount come hell or high water, not to try and time the market. And what this does is it takes emotion out of the game. And it allows someone to come in at an average price as opposed to buying at the top or trying to time the bottom um, incorrectly. Yeah. And another strategy that we've also discussed on the podcast before is using this, um, this fear and greed index as, as a method. If a dollar cost averaging definitely works and that's been shown, you can run the figures. Um, but if you even want to improve on that, you uh, 
you, you buy when the index is in extreme fear, which it is right now. And, it, you know, the index generally sort of floats between fear and greed rather than extreme fear and extreme greed. So, <laughs> I mean, it might seem counterintuitive, but the studies have been done and it shows that you can improve your returns even further by doing that. Anyway, so dollar cost averaging, certainly. I, I want to um, just move on to uh, the point that there seems to be crypto tourists that have arrived on the market in the last few years. They seem to have been shaken out by this latest move. And what we're left with is the hodlers, you know, people who are buying cryptos and holding with no intention to sell, certainly for uh, not in the short term. They'll be holding this for years. But what is clear is the percentage of hodlers is growing. And this is seen as positive when the market does eventually turn, uh, which I think most people would assume it will do. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I would agree with that. I guess these crypto tourists, if we had to you know, stereotype them, it's someone who saw the market going up and then came in, uh, possibly from a fear of missing out. Um, and then um, as the market turned, um, they, they exited. Um, and however, I think where this increasing proportion of hodlers comes from are crypto tourists who then actually became converts, looked at the technology, started to believe in it, um, et cetera. And I see this phenomenon of the crypto tourists actually being a positive one overall, because it increases the number of people who are exposed and you start to understand. Um, and as and when crypto's applications grow and its penetration increases, they'll be there and ready and potentially be uh, a new base of investors that we don't need to re-onboard to come back into the market. All right. I mean, final question here, Gaurav. I want to ask you, what are the trends you're looking at? that we should be focusing our eyes on over the coming months and possibly then, you know, into 2023, we've heard about Web3, we've heard about DeFi. What's grabbing your attention? Sure. Um, well, the, the major event that's, that's likely to happen in the next uh, six months or so is in fact uh, the merge. And the merge is this event that's happening on the Ethereum chain. Ethereum is changing the way it works from mining blocks uh, which is very energy intensive to validating blocks, which is 99% less energy intensive. However, there's a you know, phenomenal amount of value in the hundreds of billions on the Ethereum chain. And so this is the first ever event of changing over from, uh, from one way of running a blockchain to another with that much value on it. So this is a big event I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how that plays out. The other interesting thing to keep watching is just looking at how the space develops. When there's a bear market uh, in the crypto space, what we've seen in previous cycles is that um, a lot of new applications are built and new use cases. What we saw in the last cycle was the invention of decentralized finance, which is set to potentially replace and enhance the finance industry, disrupt it totally. So uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what else is built out, um, as well as the evolution of, of, of DeFi, as it's called. Do you see a great shaking out of projects, the, the unsustainable projects that are really not uh, viable from a commercial or a business point of view? And it, rather like we were back in the 1990s, you know, when you had Netscape and you had Alta Vista as a search engine, this was before Google came along and before you had the Chrome browser and so on. Do you see something like that where we're going to see the technology uh, is is going to survive, but in a in a different way, and or maybe let me express that in a slightly different way. It, it's quite clear that Bitcoin 
because of his dominance of the market is going to survive. And Ethereum and the merge that, that you've spoken about there, that's a fairly radical move, which I think gives sustainability to the Ethereum project. But a lot of the other altcoins may not survive, right? Yeah, so um, the analog of the early internet is, is, is a great analog. Um, and there's the cliche example brought up of Petrock, um, which I believe had a huge valuation and was just selling people rocks, literally stones. Um, and so when there is a bull market and prices are, are, are going up very aggressively, there is a lot of fear of missing out. People are launching projects that don't have much quality behind them. Uh, however, it's attracting investment and, and investors, et cetera, who are just hoping to get rich quick. And what the bear does, the bear market actually removes those get rich quick players because the opportunity for that is now gone. And so what you're left with is projects that have to have better fundamentals in order to attract attention, in order to attract funding, and in order to attract use. So what you do see often is you see more quality coming out in the bear markets, quite paradoxically. What about stable coins? I mean, even though the Terra Luna project was an outright failure, and, and, and that was a very risky kind of business model. But there, there are great uses for stable coins. And we're seeing a lot of projects coming to market, which are based on stable coins, that is coins using the crypto technology, but backed by real world assets like the US dollar. Of course, that was one of the fastest growing subsets within the crypto space. Do you see that as being a trend to watch for? Definitely. I think that it will be one of the biggest or potentially the biggest use cases of crypto. It already is. Yes, there was a huge failure with Terra Luna. It was a experiment really of something called an algorithmic stablecoin, a stablecoin that wasn't backed by anything. There are some people believe it's impossible to have an algorithmic stablecoin. Um, however, that's betting against human ingenuity. Maybe, maybe humans will figure it out. However, there are many stable coins that are backed one-to-one -one by dollars. And some of the firms that, that do this they have chosen to be regulated. They've placed themselves in jurisdictions which are regulated. So for example, Circle, uh, they've put themselves in New York and they've chosen to be regulated. And I'm sure we'll see a wave of regulation coming up, regulating these stablecoin issuers. And um, the reason I believe it's going to be one of the biggest use cases is that even though we call them cryptocurrencies, the value of uh, something like Bitcoin has been more and more as an investment vehicle or a store of value and less and less as a payment mechanism uh, or as a currency. And that's because it's so volatile. Maybe this will change in the future. Maybe after Bitcoin reaches a million dollars, it'll have a very stable value then. Who knows? But for now, uh, if I try to pay you something, Kieran, if I owed you $100, if I paid that to you in Bitcoin, in between me paying and you receiving it, you might receive more or less value. So it's not really effective as a payment mechanism. However, these stable coins, uh, they serve that function. Also, when people want to put their savings into something less volatile, if they're already on the blockchain, they put them into stable coins. So I believe that just the stability of being in something, uh, of being in a cryptocurrency that's a stable coin, that um, that use case is going to just see more and more adoption. Well, I did say final question a few questions ago, but this is really it now. Um, are you seeing on, on the crypto basket that you're offering that there, there's a bit of nibbling happening? People seeing you know, prices have dropped so much. This this is probably a fairly good time to start loading up, um, particularly people who've got faith in the technology and that there will be a rebound in prices. Yeah. So, in fact, you know, when we saw this kind of 50 percent, 40, 50 percent market drawdown, um, we didn't see uh, customers panicking and leaving. 
Uh, in fact, it might just be our, our customer segment, which tends to be um, older customers, our segment, who potentially, uh, this is a smaller part of their portfolio, they're not checking prices so often. Uh, in fact, what we saw was, in fact, an uptick in more investors coming in. So the narrative that these are good prices to come in at, and having seen the prices that crypto was at and believing that it could go back there again, it's actually serving as motivation for a lot of people to come in. What was interesting is when crypto was at its all-time highs, uh, the number of people that said to me, geez, I wish I'd gotten earlier. I wish I'd gotten in 2017, 2018. Well, now this is the opportunity to come in at, at prices that are, that are much lower. However, often when people ask me about investing in crypto and investing in the basket, what I often tell them is, you know, don't invest an amount of money that you're going to need in short order. So if you're planning to buy a house, don't put your deposit into crypto. It's so volatile. And uh, by the time you need your deposit two months later, it might be down 50%, which could be, even from these prices. However, in the long run, if the technology does what a lot of people see it can do, disrupting the financial system, et cetera, then it's very likely that it could be a multiple of 10, 20, 30 times its price. We've seen it do that before. We've seen it do more than that over the course of three to five year periods. And so it needs to be a portion of someone's portfolio that they're willing to not touch for three to five years. And it also needs to be a portion of their portfolio that they're willing to lose. But it has this payoff profile that if you invest 100 Rand, the worst it could do is go down to zero. However, it could do 10 times. It could go up to 1,000 Rand. And so we call this an asymmetric payoff. And so for a lot of people, it makes sense to invest a small portion of their portfolio in it because if it goes to zero, it hasn't really harmed them. However, if it does a 10, 20 times, it actually comes to dominate the portfolio, it comes to be the biggest source of return in their portfolio. Gaurav, now we're going to leave it there. That was a fascinating discussion. Thanks for unpacking all of these security issues. I think a lot of questions that are coming to MoneyWeb address this issue and there are fears and misunderstandings about security and the fact that the blockchain, as you mentioned, has never itself been hacked, the major blockchain. So where the hacks are happening, they're on the, the weaker links on these bridges between various different uh, providers on the, on the value chain. And also for your insights, into the market. I think that's um, a fairly optimistic look and uh, we, we look forward to having you back on again, maybe a little bit later in the year, just to see how the market develops by then. Thank you for having me here. It's such a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, hosted by Kieran Ryan. To listen to our other podcasts, go to moneyweb.co.za or the MoneyWeb app and follow MoneyWeb News for daily updates.